So a quick recap uh, on our series on Christ's return. First, Jesus taught us the signs of his return. That was our first message in the series, the signs of his return. But then we saw that those signs are all around us. So next, Jesus taught us that we need to be ready for his return. Christ could return at any time. But then we learned that God keeps time differently than us. And so we also need to be ready to wait for Christ's return if necessary. It could be further away than we think. And then last week we answered the question, well, what do we do while we're waiting? Do we just sit around doing nothing? No, Jesus said, what do we do while we're waiting? We prepare for his return. And we prepare for his return by being good stewards of the gifts that God has given us. Now, in our final passage, Jesus tells us why we need to prepare. Why we prepare for Christ's return. We need to prepare because when Christ returns, the final judgment will take place. And so here in our passage today, uh, Jesus teaches us about the final judgment. We learn uh, the answers to many questions. We'll be looking at quite a few of them uh, in the message today. But many questions about the final judgment from this last passage in our series. There will be judgment when Christ returns. Here comes the judge. Are you prepared? There's an outline in your worship guide. I'd encourage you to take that out to follow along uh, as we work our way through the passage and the message this morning. And you'll see there's a whole bunch of questions uh, listed at the front end of the outline. The first one is, who is our judge? Who is our judge? Jesus has been saying all along uh, throughout this uh, part of Scripture that judgment is coming, but who exactly is our judge? And we find the answer to that in verse 31. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. So question number one, who is our judge? Jesus. Jesus himself will sit on the throne for judgment. As the Son of Man and Son of God, Jesus presides on the day of judgment. Jesus said this about himself in the Gospel of John, 5th chapter, verses 22 and 23. Jesus said, moreover, the Father judges no one. That's a surprise to us, isn't it? You know, we often think that God the Father is the judge. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So that's our first question. Who is our judge? Jesus, the Son of Man, is our judge. That leads us right into our second question, which is, who will be judged then? We know who our judge is. That's Jesus. Who is going to be judged? We find the answer to that question in verse 32, where we're told, all the nations will be gathered before him. Who will be judged? All people from all nations. Just as Jesus comes with all the angels of heaven, right? He comes with all of his angels for judgment, so also all the nations of the earth are gathered together for judgment. All in heaven and all on earth come together for the final judgment. And this is in accord with uh, what we read in Revelation 20 earlier in the service, where John tells us, I saw the dead, 
great and small, standing before the throne, and each person was judged according to what he had done. So who will be judged in that day? All people from all nations will stand before Jesus. He's our judge. We'll stand before Jesus for judgment. Then the next question this section answers for us is, how will we be judged? How will we be judged? We find the answer to that question in verses 32 and 33. Jesus says, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he, the king, the son of man, Jesus is talking about himself here, he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep From the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So how will we be judged? Jesus will separate us into two distinct groups, here pictured as the sheep and the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, he will put the goats on his left, the right hand being the side of honor and blessing in Scripture. And so the sheep represent those who are saved in the final judgment. The goats represent those who are not saved. And we get this word picture, the sheep and the goats. And in other places in the Bible, we we find other word pictures to describe these two different groups. When we studied Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom, we saw that they were pictured as the wheat and the weeds. Or in a later parable, as good fish and bad fish being brought in into the net. But really the most common designation in Scripture is simply the the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are those who've put their faith in Christ. The wicked are those who have not put their faith in Christ. Notice how Jesus separates the people. He says, one from another. One from another. In other words, each individual person will be singled out, will stand before Jesus for judgment, And then we'll be assigned either to the sheep or the goats. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, Not one goat will be left among the sheep, nor one sheep with the goats. The division will be very close and personal, one from another. They will not be separated into nations nor even into families, But each individual will be allotted his or her proper place among the sheep or among the goats. And then the fourth and really the biggest question this section answers for us is this. On what basis will we be judged? Now we've learned who our judge is, Jesus who is going to be judged, all people from all nations. How will we be judged? Jesus will separate us into two distinct groups. He will put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. But on what basis will Jesus make this distinction? And we find the answer to this question in the remaining verses of our passage. And this is really the bulk of our passage today. It's the bulk of our message today. And I'm going to do something we don't always do. Usually we just sort of inch our way through. We do a couple verses at a time, and then we talk about them. But I want to read the remaining section of this passage for you. It's a long passage. But I want you to fully hear uh, Jesus' words in their context. 
And then we'll go back and look at them together. So verses 34 through 36. Here is Jesus speaking. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison, and we did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Returning to our question, on what basis will Jesus separate people into one group or the other? Here in Matthew 25, Jesus makes the distinction based on a single criterion. Now we... We know from other parts of Scripture there there are other things involved, but one criterion here in this passage, right? The sheep and the goats were separated according to how they treated what Jesus calls the least of these brothers of mine. And so that raises a couple questions. Uh, Two questions at least, right? First of all, who are the least of these? And we'll get to that in just a moment. And then secondly, are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? And you know, we need to know the answer to both of those questions or we're not going to be able to interpret this passage correctly. We're going to take some time now. We're going to look at each of those two questions. First of all, who are the least of these? Who are they? I mean, if we're going to be judged in how we treat them, we better know who they are, Right? And there are two main interpretations offered for this designation. And so the question is, does Jesus refer here to all of those who are in need? Or does he refer specifically to fellow believers who are in need? And this is one of those sections of Scripture where there are good arguments on both sides. 
And really, either one may be the correct interpretation. We don't know. But let's take a look at them. First of all, many people interpret Jesus as speaking of fellow believers. Uh, Because in verse 40, which was our memory verse, by the way, he designates the least of these as how? He says, the least of these brothers of mine. These brothers of mine. And we know from Scripture we only become brothers and sisters of Jesus when we are adopted into God's family as believers in Jesus. This would also be consistent with other passages, such as Matthew chapter 10. We looked at this a while back in our series, verses 40 through 42, where Jesus says this to his disciples. He said, Jesus said, he who receives you, okay, one of Jesus' disciples, he receives you, a disciple, receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple... I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. And so we can look at Scripture and say, wow, well, that sounds like a pretty strong interpretation that Jesus is talking about fellow believers, disciples of Jesus, as the least of these. But others interpret as Jesus speaking of anyone who's in need, whether they're believers or not. And there are good arguments for this as well. And although they agree that, yes, we're only adopted into God's family when we believe in Christ, They take that phrase, the least of these brothers of mine, in a more general way. And they would see this as an example, really, of Jesus identifying with all of humanity, more along the ideas of a common brotherhood of man, where we are all created in God's image, rather than speaking specifically of those who have been adopted into God's family by faith in Christ. And this also would be consistent with other passages in Scripture where Jesus tells us we need to take care of the poor or uh, Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The whole point of that parable is what? That we should help those who are not like us, right? Uh, And not rather than only those who share our culture or beliefs. We need to help everyone. You go, well, great, Pastor. Now I don't know which one it is. Which is it, right? Well, we don't really know, do we? Uh, Personally, I believe he's referring specifically to believers here. I'll just share with you my reasons for that. Um, Notice that when Jesus uses the word brothers, he uses that word when talking to the sheep. He doesn't use that word when talking to the goats. I think that's significant. Um, I almost picture Jesus as as he turns to his right and speaks to them there and uh, just gesturing with his hands. Whatever you did, speaking to all the sheep... For any of the least of these brothers of mine, indicating all of his sheep, you did for me. And then I picture him turning to his left and and, and talking to the goats and telling them, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And so I believe Jesus is referring specifically to believers here. But that does not mean that we are not supposed to help everyone, whether they're believers or not. Galatians 6.10, I think, provides us a great guideline to follow. Galatians 6.10 says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Right? That's everyone, believers or not. And especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So there's a couple of things here. We help everyone, okay? We don't walk up to someone and say, are you, are you a believer? Well, no, I'm not. Well, forget you. You know, no, you don't. That's not very Christian. That's not very Christ-like. We help everyone. It doesn't matter if they're a believer or not. 
But then Paul says, especially the family of believers. Because you see, you can't help everyone, right? We'd like to, but realistically, you can't help everyone. And so Paul says you need to prioritize and especially do good to other believers. You do good to anyone, anytime you can, but it is wrong not to help family. It takes it to a different level. Do good to all people as you have opportunity, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's the answer to that first question. Who are the least of these? Specifically, I believe they are fellow believers, although it could mean everyone. We see that in there as well. But either way, you help everyone, but especially the family of believers. How about that second question? Are we saved by faith or by works? And the reason this question comes up is you may have noticed this. The only difference between the sheep and the goats, right, is only one difference, is what they did or did not do. That's it. It's what they did or didn't do. And so it almost looks here as though Jesus is saying we are saved by works rather than by faith. And here's where we need to be very careful that we interpret this passage, as we always do, in harmony with the rest of Scripture. Now, if we only had this passage in our Bible, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, nothing else. Okay, we didn't have the rest of the Bible. We could interpret it in one of two ways. And we wouldn't know which one was right. We could interpret it that these good works Jesus speaks about are the basis of our salvation. That is, that we're saved by works. Or we could interpret it that these good works Jesus speaks of are the evidence of our salvation. That we're saved some other way, but the works show that we are truly saved. We only had that passage, we'd say, well, it's one of those two, but I don't know which. But praise God, we've got a whole Bible, don't we? We've got a lot of other passages we can look at. And in this case, I couldn't tell you on the first one which interpretation is the, the correct one. But in this one, we know absolutely which is the correct one. Comparing Scripture to Scripture, it's very clear. We go with option two. These works are not the basis of our salvation. Rather, they are the evidence for our salvation. Faith comes first, then works. For example, we read in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, 8 through 10, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works. Can't get any clearer than that, right? Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this passage is so important because it tells us a couple of things. First of all, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Very clear. But then uh, it goes on to say, now that you've become a Christian, now that you've put your faith in Christ, God has created you in Christ Jesus to do good works. Once again, faith comes first then works. Book of James says this exact same thing, James 2, 14 to 17. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? In other words, is it true saving faith? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Sounds like what Jesus was just talking about. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And so we are saved by faith, but our faith is evidenced by good, our good works. And without the works, there is no evidence that you have true faith. Some people phrase it this way. I like this a lot. Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is not alone. I'll say that again. It's a good one. Faith alone saves, okay? Only saved by faith alone. Faith alone saves. But faith that saves is not alone. It will always include works. So we saved by faith and by works. We are saved by faith alone. On what basis does Jesus separate the people into one group or the other? Not on the basis of their works, but rather on the basis of their faith as evidenced by their works. Those who truly believe demonstrate their faith by practical love and care to other believers and to those in need. And there's other things we could actually get some clues from just from this passage alone, if this was our only passage. Because notice how Jesus welcomes the believers into their inheritance. An inheritance that was prepared for them before the creation of the world, before they did a certain thing. This is grace language. An inheritance is something that is given, that is uh, received, not earned. We are saved by faith. That faith is evidenced by our works. We should never separate faith from works. We should never separate works from works of mercy towards people in need. And those who are truly saved demonstrate their faith by reaching out to those in need, ministering to those basic needs of food, clothing, Shelter, visitation, we do good to all people, and especially to the family of believers. Now, we come to really the most important teaching of the whole section, okay? Everything we've been looking at has been leading up to this. Here it is. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for Jesus. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for Jesus. And notice there's an element of surprise here when Jesus gets to this part of the teaching, both with the sheep and the goats. They're both surprised. When the king tells those on his right all the things they did, they say, well, Lord, when did we do those things for you? Whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And when the king tells those on his left all the things that they did not do for him, they go, oh, Lord, when did we not do those things for you? Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And Jesus' teaching here is so clear. Whatever you do for other believers, you do for Jesus. Whatever you do not do or withhold from other believers, you do not do or withhold from Christ. And this is because we are all a part of the body of Christ, right? We are all part of Christ's body. Christ is the head of the body. And so when you minister to other believers, you're ministering to the body. Christ is the head. You also minister to Jesus. When you neglect or mistreat those in the body of Christ, you are neglecting the body of Christ. He is the head of the body. You are neglecting or mistreating Jesus. The Apostle Paul learned this truth the hard way on the road to Damascus. 
He'd been persecuting Christians. That's why he was going to Damascus to persecute some more Christians. Jesus met him on the way. And Jesus spoke to him from heaven. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Notice what Jesus does not say. You'd expect him to say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? Why are you persecuting believers? No, what does Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We are all part of the body of Christ. And so in persecuting other believers, Paul was also persecuting Jesus. And as so often, and when we're reading Scripture or doing any teaching from Scripture, it all comes back to Jesus, right? You've seen that, right? It all comes back to Jesus. And when you take all of this together in the long run, this is what we learn. We are judged according to how we treated Jesus. Because whatever we do for the least of these, we do for Christ. And whatever we do not do for the least of these, we do not do for Christ. In the final judgment, people are judged according to their relationship with Jesus as demonstrated by how they have treated his people. Then our final teaching from this passage, uh, our sixth teaching... Jesus teaches us that at the final judgment, the wicked will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let me just read three verses from that longer passage to you. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Then we read in verse uh, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice something there. Notice that heaven was prepared for God's people since before the creation of the world. God prepared heaven a long time ago. Whereas hell was not even originally prepared for people. It was originally prepared, Jesus says, for the devil and his angels. And then we read that final verse, verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In other words, the separation that takes place at the final judgment, that separation continues throughout all of eternity. It is a separation based on how you responded to Jesus in this life. How did you respond to Jesus as evidenced by your love and care for other people, especially those belonging to the family of God. Jesus told us we need to be ready for his return. He told us we need to prepare for his return. Why? Because there will be judgment when Christ returns. When Jesus returns, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. He will judge all people from all nations He will separate all of humanity into two groups. One group will go away to eternal punishment, the other to eternal life. And so you need to make sure that your faith is in Jesus so that you will be saved. And you need to make sure that your faith is genuine by doing what God tells you. How do you prepare for Christ's return? You prepare for Christ's return by 
Number one, using the gifts God has given you for, for God and for others. That's what we learned last week. And then also you prepare for his return by helping those who are in need. That's what we learned this week. Because you see, on that final day, you will end up either on Jesus' right or on his left. There are no other options. So choose wisely and choose today. Let us pray. Dear Lord, it is a sobering passage that we close out our series on this morning. And uh, Lord, I confess that I have not done enough to help other people in need. And Lord, I imagine that most of us across the congregation this morning would confess that we have not done enough to help other people in need. And yet, Lord Jesus, this is your heart. This is your heartbeat, your heart of compassion uh, that you show us here in in this final passage. So, Lord, help us to do better. Help us to love you better, to treat you better in the way we treat others. Help us to take this passage to heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.